Good morning. Um, just one more announcement. Um, this is the last uh, weekend when you can sign up for the conference, which is next weekend, January 27, 28. The conference is entitled Covenant, uh, but it definitely is about covenant and how God, throughout Scripture, is uh, making provisions so that all people might come to know Him. If you want to get a good overview of Old and New Testaments, sign up for this Bible conference. It's with Dr. Dan Block. Dr. Dan Block is an old, renowned Old Testament professor, originally from Canada, but he's been teaching at Wheaton Grad School in Chicago for many years, and he'll be here next weekend. He'll also be preaching here Sunday morning. But uh, take advantage of this great opportunity. Uh, you can go to our website. It's on the home page and on the events page. You do need to register. It's $50 to participate in the course. Great. Why don't you stand up, and we're going to read the Scriptures. And Jesse is going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Jesse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you, Jesse. Let's pray. People are crap clapping for you, Jesse. <laughs> Yeah, we are thankful that we can hear the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for the Scriptures, and uh, we thank you that you have not only gifted us with life as we celebrate this Lunar New Year, but we are thankful for the gift of your Son, that you have given us new life. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, and we pray Lord, that you would teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand what the Word means for us today and also what it means for those around us. May we listen to your Word, understand it, and then live by it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. Uh, the title of our series, of course, is The Elephant in the Room, and this is the second message in the series. If you didn't hear the first one, that was about 
the Scriptures and why do we trust the Bible, please go back to our website and watch that message. The question today is, why fight for all human life? And this truly is one of the most pressing questions of our day. Does human life care? The most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself, the way in which he understands his nature, his identity, and his destiny, his purpose. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all the others which influence human life. So how we see ourselves influences or determines how we answer today's question, why fight for all human life? Are we an illusion, uh, intelligent apes, gods, or the creation of God? Are we here by accident, just here existing today between the accidents of birth and death with no ultimate purpose? Let's look at one example in our society today where answers to these questions have far-reaching implications. Euthanasia. Euthanasia is the practice of intentionally ending human life to eliminate pain and suffering. Made, medical assistance in dying, is one example of this practice. Brian Bird, assistant professor at the Peter Ellard School of Law at UBC, has written this. Euthanasia is a runaway train in Canada. It's time to hit the brakes. Why would he write that? Well, Canada legalized euthanasia in 2016 after the Supreme Court ruled that physician-assisted death is protected by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. And it's protected for consenting adults in certain medical circumstances. At that time, Parliament restricted euthanasia to persons with physical ailments who were nearing death and suffering greatly. In 2021, our Canadian Parliament expanded euthanasia to encompass significant suffering regardless of whether or not death was on the horizon. And this year, after March 17, 2023, you can check this out on the Government of Canada website. After March 17th of this year, people with a mental illness as their sole underlying condition will have access to MAID if they meet the eligibility requirements. So that's in just a, a few weeks. So Canada is depression, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, schizophrenia, PTSD, or some other mental affliction. Starting with the bad news today, I will get to the good news in a minute. So by March, Canada will have journeyed in only seven years from a total prohibition of euthanasia to euthanasia at an adult's deathbed to euthanasia for mental illness at any moment of an adult's life. That's why Professor Bird says it's a, a runaway train. In 2021, euthanasia was the cause of 5% of deaths in British Columbia. On Vancouver Island, it was 7.5%. 
the parliamentary committee overseeing this matter is, ex is currently exploring euthanasia for mature minors. A Quebec physician recently suggested euthanasia for newborns suffering from grave and severe malformations or syndromes. So it is a runaway train. Why is this happening? Why would our society come to the conclusion that some lives are just not worth living? How did we get here? Well, to understand why these things are happening, we need to understand the worldview of Canadian society, the dominant worldview, our way of seeing human life. It's referred to as personhood theory. And according to personhood theory, there are two tiers when it comes to human life. It argues that to be biologically human, well, that's a scientific fact. But to be a person, now hear this, but to be a person, you must attain and maintain a certain level of cognitive functioning, of self-awareness, consciousness, and autonomy. So this is not science, this is worldview, personhood theory. According to this view, the human body is separated from the human person. The body is expendable. Personhood is something that you earn, something that you merit. Only a person has moral and legal standing. When a human being becomes a person, of course, no one can really, you know, determine scientifically where that happens, and so it's a bit arbitrary. This worldview is at the heart, it's right at the heart of the conversation around the dignity of the unborn, around euthanasia, and many other issues in our culture. If you want to go deeper in this conversation, I'll recommend a book to you. The book is Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. It's a wonderful book. You can, you can pick up a copy of it in the lobby. You can look at it and uh, just take a look. It is a, a ma magnificent book. Love thy body. So in Canada, the human fetus, a non-person. That's why it's expendable. That's why it can be used for research and experimentation. A person who is terminally ill that is no longer autonomous is considered less than a person. A person who is mentally ill that no longer has control of all of its mental faculties is deemed less than a person. Consider euthanasia. People struggling with PTSD because of the cost of maintaining their lives. It's convenient for the healthcare system. It's convenient for the long-term care system. So, thinking about this worldview, it doesn't take a genius <laughs> to come to the understanding that people living by this worldview will make decisions based on economics and power, right? If the healthcare system is broken, well, then it will become financially expedient to end the lives of those human lives that are considered to be no longer worth living. 
and those in power will have the moral and legal right to make these decisions, to impose their will. In the 20th century, Nazi Germany dehumanized Jews by calling them rats and then exterminated six million. In the Soviet Union, Vladimir Lenin, he referred to people in the Soviet Union as former persons, as parasites, or as class enemies. And during the Red Terror, 100,000 were exterminated. Under Joseph Stalin, of course, that number went up to about 10 million. In Canada today, and this is what is really sobering, in Canada today, I'm talking about Canada as a culture, as a society, we have no moral foundation for universal human foundation to protect those who are deemed non-persons, unwanted children, terminally ill, the mentally ill, the disabled, and so on. So that's the bad news. <laughs> What's the good news? Well, the good news that we need to hear clearly and loudly today is the wonderful perspective that God has on human life. When it comes to worldview, when it comes to the understanding of human life, the value placed on human life, there is nothing that compares to God's perspective on human life as presented in Scripture. And what I talk about today is a conversation that parents need to have with their children. It's a conversation that spiritual mentors need to have with their mentees. What does the Bible say about who we are? As you read through Genesis 1, Jesse read the last verses of Genesis 1. But as you read through Genesis chapter 1, you see that from day 1 to day 6, it's all moving toward the apex of creation. On the sixth day of creation, God fills the earth with living creatures. And God sees that it is good. And then God does something remarkably different. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God creates the entire cosmos with someone in mind. Other creatures are created according to their kinds. But, get this, humanity, men and women, are created in the very image of God. And that changes everything. Nothing in secular philosophy today comes anywhere close to this kind of an affirmation on human life. Nothing. Really important to hear that and understand that. When we go back, for example, to the American Constitution, which was ratified on July 4th of 1776, it states that all men are created equal that they are endowed with, by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. It's presented as sacred, sacred truth. Well, the American Constitution was inspired by Genesis 1 when these words were penned, even if the words were penned by deists. <laughs> the Universal Declara Declaration of Human Rights, ratified by the United Nations on de December the 10th, 1948, it insists upon the inherent dignity and equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. All human beings are born free 
and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. These documents that we read were profoundly influenced by the, the language of humanity's sacred dignity in the Scriptures. That is undeniable. The notion of the image of God lies at the heart of the question that we're trying to answer today. Why, why fight for all human life? And the first thing we need to note is that God created us in His image. That is something to celebrate, to rejoice in. We don't look to ourselves or to animals or to the environment or to the cosmos to understand who we are. We don't have to create our identity through work and study and self-promotion. Our lives don't become life worth living because of our development. We don't become persons because we we manage to attain and maintain some level of cognitive functioning and some level of autonomy. That is not what gives our life value. It's God's declaration about who we are. He's created us in His image. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we encounter the first poem in the Bible. Its three phases highlight the uniqueness of human life. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. The word man there is the English translation of the Hebrew word Adam. Adam means from the earth. And in this verse, man is the generic term for man and woman. In, in stark contrast to the ancient world worldview, where women were considered to be of less value than men, the Scriptures proclaim that the image of God is found in men, yes, but equally in women. God creates two genders calls them very good, and men and women have equal value. That is something to celebrate. Every, oh. every male and female in this room today, every male and female on earth are of inestimable value in the sight of God. Every human life, from conception to adult life to passage into eternity is endowed with dignity, with worth. Regardless of our ability or our usefulness to society, we are precious to our Creator. Therefore, every assault on human life is an affront to whom? God Himself, to our Creator. Jesus lived with this worldview. When Jesus walked on earth, What was the worldview of the Roman Empire? Have you thought about this? What was the prevailing worldview? Listen to this letter from Hilarion. Hilarion was a Roman soldier. He was stationed in the port city of Alexandria in Egypt. And he writes to his wife, Hilarion, to his sister, Alice, many greetings also to my lady, Barris, and Apollinarian. Excuse me. Know that I am still in Alexandria, and do not worry if they, the army, wholly set out. I'm staying in Alexandria at you. Thus I am asking you not to worry. So Hilarion, he talks of casting out a a child at childbirth, at birth, in a throwaway line 
in an otherwise fairly normally normal family letter. In ancient times, this letter would not have been shocking. Hilarion would not have been considered immoral. What he suggests was not illegal. He would not have been viewed as a moral monster. Disposing of newborns was common practice. It was family planning. A child's value in the Roman world depended on its usefulness and its capacity. So children were frequently discarded. If they were deformed, if they were disabled, if the child was female, as in the case of Hilarion, or if it was going to be very difficult to feed another mouth, what happened? The child was simply left to die on a street corner or at the garbage dump. This may or may not surprise us, but the worldview of Hilarion is the worldview of Hilarion very similar to the worldview in Canada today. The philosophical foundations are very similar because his worldview was a world where body and person were separated. If anyone tells you that we are evolving morally and progressing to some kind of utopia, please do not believe that. In Canada today, we are in a season of moral degradation, not evolution. We are not evolving to a higher moral order in this country. So I just showed you a picture of the worldview of the Roman Empire. What did the early Christians do in their world? And for us. Well, the early Christians, they lived by the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. These words of Jesus absolutely rocked the world of Hilarion. The early church leaders, the early church fathers, they wrestled with these words because they were trying to understand them in their culture because they were just so revolutionary. See, they lived in a world where children were of no value, were of very little value, not persons. And Jesus comes along and says, be like a child. Don't despise a little one. Love them. Let them come to me. Then in light of God's perspective on human life, the early Christians, what did they do? They lived differently. <laughs> they rescued discarded infants. They fed the destitute. They protected women. They liberated slaves. They had a completely different way of seeing humans. So different. It took Christians about 300 years to convince Rome that infants should not be discarded. But in 374 AD, there was a complete ban on the killing of infants. It was written into Roman law. What was behind it? The understanding that every human life is created in the image of God. That revolutionized the Roman world. So why fight for all human life? First of all, God created us in his image. And secondly, 
God created us to love every human being. Why do I say that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God is having a conversation with himself. And he says, let us make man in our image. Why does he not say, let me make man in my Let us. Why? Because God exists as three in one. One in essence, but three persons living in eternal, loving community. That's just who our God is. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together created the cosmos and every living thing. And in his will and purpose, God placed us close to himself. Why would we want to live anything less? God created us close to himself in his image. And because we are made in the image of the God who is love, we have the capacity to love God and to love one another. God has gifted us with the capacity to love. We are created to love every human being, regardless of race, color, ethnicity, mental capacity, age, consciousness, even our enemies. Often euthanasia is presented as an act of compassion, right? So to end the suffering is considered to be an act of mercy. The very word compassion means to suffer with. That's what it means. And so if we exercise compassion, then we are willing to act on pain and walk with them. That's compassion. Not encouraging them to end their lives. Physician John Wyatt, he wrote this. In Christian thinking, whatever happens to you in the future... Whatever disease or may befall your central nervous system, even if you are struck down by dementia or enter a persistent vegetative state, you will still be you. Please hear that. Even if you are struck down by dementia or enter a persistent vegetative state, you will still be you, a unique and wonderful person known and loved by God and a person to be loved by other human beings. The British historian, uh, Tom Holland, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist. And he argues that it is indisputable that at least in Western culture, it is because of Jesus that we give value to human life. That's why. And more and more atheists are coming to this conclusion. It's not because we have evolved and suddenly we've come to this understanding that every human life, regardless of gender or ethnicity or race, is of equal value. No, that came from Jesus. It came from the Scriptures. Of course, we have to ask the question. If in Rome, you know, in the fourth century, they were discovering that every human life has value, that we're all created in the image of God, and then this influenced Europe and North America and other parts of the world. What happened? What changed? If so many people had this foundational understanding that every human life has inherent value, that we are created in the image of God, what happened? Why would we be living in a society where every human life no longer has worth? 
Well, Charles Darwin is not alone. Not everything rests on his shoulders. Massive worldview shift. Darwin argued that human beings are not created by God. They're not created with divine purpose. Rather, they are the result of blind and undirected forces. We're, we're, we're the product of this purposeless material process. He's famously known for his work on the origin of species, right? Written in 1856, I believe. Let me check my notes. Yeah, no, 1859. Three years off. 1859. On the origin of, the, of species. Now, what's interesting is that he very ironically denied the existence of the human species. What he said was, we're just a temporary grouping in the ever-changing genetic stream. In other words, there is no special value in being human. He denied divine identity. He, he denied divine purpose. That was his distinctive contention. In his view, we were just the random product, right, of a natural selection process and a series of genetic mutations. And if you've gone to school in Canada, you've heard all of this. It's nothing, none of this is new. Well, a society that embraces personhood theory. He laid the theoretical foundation for it. When human beings are no longer created in the image of God, the basis for a biblical understanding of morality is our will on reality. This helps us understand why, in some cases, human life has less value than a mountain or a river. To protect nature, to protect Mother Earth, a new concept has, has uh, developed, environmental personhood. And so you may not know this, but the Magpie River in Quebec has been granted legal status as a person. How could we do that? So we live in a, in, in, a, in a culture where a river is given the status of a person, the legal status of a person, and we say to some human beings that their lives are not worth living, that they are less than persons. Well, Darwin's theory of evolution laid the foundation for that. And evolutionary thinking walks in tandem very easily with a pantheistic worldview that gives sacred value to a mountain or a river. So we need to go back to what God says. What does he say? Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this verse, it links the image of God with the dominion that human beings are to have over all living creatures, over all of creation. This is humanity's assigned mandate. Of course, the question is, how do we exercise our dominion? But that mandate was given to us. We fight for all human life because God created us in his image, because God created us to love every human being, and because God 
created us in such a way that we were to represent him on earth. What does that mean? Well, we need to understand the worldview of the time that Genesis 1 was written. In the ancient Near East, the king or the emperor or the pharaoh was the living, visible representative of the God on earth. The whole political apparatus, the mythology supported this. The king or the emperor was the living representative of the God on earth. Only the king. All of the wealth, all of the power structures supported this understanding. In the scriptures, things change radically. And this is why we should understand that the scriptures are revelation. Because nothing in the history of humanity led the Jewish people to this understanding. The scriptures declare every person, regardless of gender, class, culture, ethnicity, creed, every human being is made in the image and likeness of God, therefore Every person is a vice-regent of God. We are all royalty. Why would we live with a self-understanding any lower? So the Scriptures are saying, not just the kings and the emperors and the pharaohs are representatives of the God. is to represent God on earth. Only God is the king of the cosmos. And God says to us, all of us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, in our ruling, we are to image God's way of ruling. This is a key point. The phrase subdue it and have dominion has been grossly misinterpreted. Some believe that the natural world is just sitting out there waiting to be used and abused by human beings, at least by us. <laughs> Subdued, that's a consequence of the fall. We also don't take the view that everything is sacred, the biocentric view where every living thing and the earth and the animals and humans are all on an equal plane. They all have equal status. And we're, we actually can worship our environment. We just want to be one with it. That also is not the biblical, biblical view. The biblical view is that God is at the center. We take a theocentric view. We are created in His image. We are created to steward the earth as He would, to image what He would do. We do this for His glory. It's a privilege. Everything belongs to Him. But in His goodness, in His mercy, He has created us in His image to care for the earth. God's full expectation is that we live as vice regents. We should be the best environmentalists, not worshiping creation, but caring for it. We have this responsibility. So, we're created in God's image. That's the first point. Secondly, we're created to love every human being. Thirdly, God created us to represent Him on earth. And the fourth point is the most important. 
God puts an exclamation mark on the value of human life. When? God puts an exclamation mark on the value of human life. God's exclamation mark on the value of human life is Jesus. Jesus. And this is what is so sad about our culture today. It holds its fist up toward God and says, we have no need of Jesus. What really solidifies God's perspective on human life, the value that he places on every man and woman, every child, is the Son of God entering matter, conceived in the womb of Mary, taking on a physical body. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, as he walks this earth, he has a full understanding of his identity. He knows his purpose. He reflects the image of the Father perfectly. If you want to understand what it means to be human, look at Jesus. Looking at Jesus, we see the truth about God. We see the truth about ourselves. He is the perfect image of God. For Jesus, every human life has value. Can you imagine Jesus saying to a child, you're less than a person? Can you imagine Jesus saying to a person that's terminally ill, your life is no longer worth living, you are less? Can you imagine Jesus saying to a disabled person, you're not a person, your life isn't worth living? For Jesus, every human being is a person created in the image of God, regardless of cognitive functioning, consciousness, self-awareness, or autonomy. And not only that, Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross. And if that were not enough, Jesus was, rose from the dead with a resurrection body. And not only that, when he ascended to heaven, his human nature was permanent, is the exclamation mark on the value of human life. You see, Jesus' resurrection puts the eternal seal on the value of every human being. We are body and soul, we're embodied souls. From God's perspective, the human body cannot be separated from our mind or our consciousness. We're integrated. And the, in eternity, as we go into eternity, it will be an intensification, a glorification of this life. So what do we do? Well, we march on Ottawa. <laughs> That's not what I'll advocate this morning. Let's go to the letter of Philippians just for a second. Paul, when he writes to the church in Philippi, he says to them, you're citizens of heaven. Why does he say that? You see, Philippi was a Roman colony, and many in Philippi had Roman citizenship. And the expectation of those with Roman citizenship was that they would not go back to Rome, but bring Rome to Philippi. 
The expectation was that Roman culture would permeate Philippi. Philippi would become like Rome. So, by being followers of Jesus, by understanding themselves as citizens of heaven, Paul was saying to them, don't run from Philippi, permeate Philippi with kingdom culture. Love your neighbors. Tell your neighbors that they're created in the image of God. Care for your neighbors. Work for their well-being. Infiltrate Philippi with kingdom culture, with God's perspective. And that's what they did. So one of the things that we must do today, and so often when we do this, we're accused of imposing our, our, our will or our morality or our worldview on others. No. We need to joyfully, humbly, confidently share the biblical worldview because there's nothing better on earth. And when we do that, we do that out of love. We do it because we care for our neighbor, because we actually care about human rights. We actually care about the dignity of every living person. That's why we do it. It's what God has called us to do. You see, being created in God's image, we understand that every human life has inherent value. Being created in God's image, we are called to love every human being. And God has given us the capacity to do it by the Spirit. Being created in God's image, we want to steward what God has placed in our hands. The environment and every human life on earth. At least to exemplify what it would like to be like to value those, those um, fellow citizens here on earth. Being created in God's image, we want to follow the example of the one who reflected God's image perfectly, Jesus. And why do we do that? We do that out of love for the healing and salvation of our world. And maybe you're here this morning and you wonder about your own life. Is my life worth living? Does my life still have value? Please hear what God is saying. Yes. Your life has inherent value. It will always have value. Why? Because God created you in His image. Human beings and for you to love. God has created you with dignity to represent Him on earth. And not only that, you are so loved that God sent His only Son for your salvation. Jesus, in His coming and His life and His death and His resurrection, He sealed the value of your life. So know that Jesus loves you and places eternal value on your life. And if anyone is telling you that your life is not worth value, please do not listen to that voice. Hear the voice of God through the Scriptures. And if you're wrestling with that today, I encourage you, I urge you, please talk to a pastor or go to the prayer center where people would love to pray with you and care for you. After the service, come forward with prayer. And what I've shared this morning, I would just encourage you to understand the biblical worldview, 
and then to, yes, share it with others out of love, not in a condescending way, but out of love. Because the lives of many around us depend on it. Amen? Amen. We're going to respond with a responsive reading. Pastor Jerry is going to come and lead us in a responsive reading. Pastor Jerry. I encourage you to stand together. There's life and death in the power of the tongue, so we are going to confess life and declare life today. I'll read and then you will all read together. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, you who have given us life and intended us to have it forever, enlighten our minds to an awareness and to a renewed conviction that all human life is sacred because it is created in your image and likeness. Your masterpiece. You create. Thank you for making us so wondrously complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well we know it. You made all the delicate inner parts of our bodies and knit us together in our mother's womb. For we are your masterpiece. You created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that you planned for us long ago. Help us to teach by word and the example of our lives that life occupies the first place and that human life is precious because it is the gift of God whose love is infinite. For we are your masterpiece, created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things you planned for us long ago. Give us the strength to defend human life against every influence or action that threatens or weakens it, as well as the strength to share your perfect love with those around us as you have shared your love with us. For you have promised to mend the brokenhearted and those who are held captive to guilt and shame from their past can be set free. For we are your masterpiece. You created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things that you planned for us long ago. You promise forgiveness and restoration to all who come humbly to your throne of grace. All our hope is in you. You alone can restore the joy of our salvation. Your mercies are new every morning, and you are still creating life in us and through your church. So lead us to show the world how much you love and care for creation. For we are your masterpiece. You created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that you planned for us long ago. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing together as our additional response to the greatness of our God and for the life and breath he has put in us. Let's breathe it back to him in worship. 